So when I was in college in Chicago back in the day, my parents, my parents gave me a credit card. This isn't it, because uh, that would be weird. But, um, but the bill went to them. And I uh, was given a $50 a month limit. It wasn't a hard limit, but it was a strong suggestion. And my folks maybe remember this differently, I don't know, but my memory is that I treated that credit card like it was made of pure gold. It wasn't just a credit card. In my mind, it was precious to me because I knew it represented my parents' hard work, it represented all the sacrifices they made for me and my sister and my brother. Uh, it represented all the ways I had watched them be generous in the world that we lived in. And I knew that my parents' heart toward me was good and that they would provide for me no matter what. I did not in any way believe that that credit card was mine or the $50 a month was mine. And it was that whole big conglomeration of beliefs about that credit card and the money that I was allowed to spend on it that drove my behavior in college toward money and toward spending. I took every penny I spent on that card so seriously. At the same time, I never felt lack or like I was living with scarcity. That card in my purse represented all the love and care and affection of my parents. And what I believed about that card and whose money it was strongly influenced my behavior. At the same time, fascinating to this East Waterloo girl, I watched a young woman from Texas, freshman girl in my dorm, spend so much money on shoes that she had to leave college at the semester. I mean, there, but for the grace of God go I, but I don't have any fashion sense, so shoes were not my issue, right? But how we think, what we believe about money determines how we live, so much of how we live. Do we live lives filled with fear and anxiety and a sense of bondage? Or do we live more and more, no matter our net worth, with a sense of assurance and confidence and a generous spirit and a sense of freedom? One of the things I love about Jesus is his brilliance. And so over 2,000 years ago, he said this simple sentence, and it could not be more true. He simply said, you cannot serve both God and money. You just can't do it. Martin Luther said there are three conversions. The conversion of the mind, the conversion of the heart, and the conversion of the purse. And of the three the purse is the most difficult. See, Jesus taught so much about money. So much of his teaching was about money because he understood this. He understood that his message about money, his timeless message, 
and the culture's message, whatever culture human beings would live in, he understood those two messages would almost always clash. And he understood that human beings would get confused. And he understood that I would get confused. And that you would too. And so that's why we're doing this series, I Love God, But... It's a series meant to push hard against all the cultural messages you and I are bombarded with on the daily. Thousands of messages, subliminal and overt. You watch the holiday season is about to rear its head. You watch what's going to happen to us. We are going to get messages that tell us to trust in money and stuff because they are the means to both happiness and joy. But listen, this is not a series designed to make us feel bad about money. This is a series about grace and trust and freedom. And it's a series about connecting more deeply with God in the trenches of our daily lives. Because so much of our daily lives are spent thinking about and making decisions about money and stuff. Earning it, getting it saving it, spending it, giving it away. All the time, we're thinking about it. And Jesus wants us to be at peace about money. And to do that, and I know we're all starting from all different kinds of places on the spectrum. We understand that when we talk about money, that there's probably great pain and angst in the room. But all of us today can start to step into a different reality. But we have to know what we're up against. And so this idea, this idea that my money is mine, even just the phrase my money, is, and having more of it and spending most of it and on myself is the way to happiness and joy and freedom. This, this message is so thick and insidious, it's like the air that we breathe. We don't even realize we're being influenced by it. But I want you to imagine with me instead, just practice this morning, imagining what life could be like if we all knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that everything we have, and when I say everything, I mean everything, the clothes you're wearing right now, your shoes, your watch, your jewelry, your undies. Think about that for just a minute. Everything. Not yours, God's, your car, your furniture, your bank account, your phone. And imagine with me that this God who owns it all loves you desperately. And he wants to provide for you, just like my parents. And that $50 credit card. He wants to be our good, good father, our provider. And he also wants freedom for us. He doesn't want us to have to leave college at the semester because we bought too many shoes. He wants to provide the kind of freedom that only he can provide, but that money and possessions will always try to promise us. And imagine if this God who owns it all, who loves you, and who wants you to live in freedom, also wants more than anything else to be in a relationship with you, especially in this area of money. 
Well, I submit to you, whether you know it or not, that you don't have to imagine this because this is simply the reality of the world that you and I live in. Truth number one I want to talk about this morning is that everything is God's. And this is a truth that is not meant to crush us. It's not meant to be like a parent that comes and rips things out of their kids' hands and makes them cry. This is actually a truth that's designed to rescue us from the greatest potential threat to the human soul. And this idea that everything is God's, you can start at the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis where we read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's all his, all the way to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, where Jesus says, you know what? I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, basically saying it's all mine. All the way right into the very middle of the Bible, Psalm 50. Couldn't get more middle than that where the psalmist is writing and, and, and tripping over into the voice of God. And we read this. I am God, your God. Every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. So perfect for Iowa, though we have ten, just ten hills, right? I know every bird in the mountains, says God, and the insects have you ever thought about this? The insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Everything is God's. And of course, you don't have to believe that. It's a choice. But I urge you to consider it because it changes Everything, and the truth is, whether or not you believe that the Bible contains truth, we all know that certain things are true, right? Job, the very beginning of the Old Testament book of Job. I pulled this passage from the King James Version because sometimes you just got to say it in the King James. Am I right? This is, what, this is what the writer of Job says. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. <laughs> now, I don't know what thither means. Sorry, front row. But let me take a wild swing at what the writer of Job meant. It's not yours. You were naked on your birthday, and you're going to be naked when you die. It never was yours. It all goes back in the box. He or she who dies with the most toys does not win. He or she who dies with the most toys just dies. Thank you. That was funny, wasn't it? No, God says, it's mine. And I love you. You know, just like that message from my parents with the credit card. And I want you to steward some of what is mine. I want you to use it to care for yourself and to do the work I've called you to do on this earth. But you've got to understand, first of all, it's all mine. Second truth that I think God wants us to know when it comes to our money is that God cares for me. God cares for me. Jesus, who is considered the face of God, if you want to know what God looks like and sounds like and is like, look at Jesus. Over and over, Jesus tried to get this idea across to the people who were listening to him. In the Gospel of Luke, 
Jesus says this in the midst of of some warnings and other encouragements. Jesus says this, Luke chapter 12, verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Even the hairs on your head. Some of you takes a lot less counting by God than others. I see you reflecting out there in the lights. But of course, you know, this passage isn't meant to be taken literally. It's instead this beautiful image, this beautiful word picture that Jesus paints about how intimately and personally God cares for each and every one of his children. God owns it all and God cares for you. And this, I believe, for most of us is where the rubber really hits the road. Because we might say, you know what, yes, I believe that it's all God's. But where I have a really hard time is believing that God cares for me. I read somewhere that it's easier easier for us to believe that God exists than to believe that God loves me. And I think this is really, really hard for some of us, especially when life with money gets tough. And now, God may not give us every living thing we think we want, need, and deserve, but he promises to care for you. Sometimes when Chuck and I can't figure out what to watch on TV or we're flipping back and forth between football and something else, we end up watching one of those home renovation shows where two 25-year-olds walk into a home and they say, you know, we have a $750,000 budget. And Chuck and I are like, A, no you don't. And then they walk into what we think is a relatively fine-looking home, and they're like, no, uh uh-uh. There's no way we can live in this house until this kitchen and these two bathrooms are renovated. And Chuck and I are like, that kitchen is fine. Suck it up, buttercup. Who told you you can't have, uh, you can't live in a house unless the kitchen is renovated? True story. After 32 years of blissful marriage, Chuck and I sat down this very morning in our living room on Chuck's grandpa's office furniture that is approximately as old as I am. Okay? This doesn't mean I don't struggle. I've been trying to finagle a new couch for the last decade or so, and to be honest with you, I just need a new couch, okay? So please call Chuck, he's right here in a black shirt. 319-610. Some guy from Grundy texted him last week and said, Chuck, get Alice a new couch. God. (laughs) Chuck texts back, God, the couch is fine. Chuck. Listen, here's the truth. And sometimes we just need to say it. If we make $32,000 a year, we are in the top 1% of the world's earners. And yet we are made to feel as if we never have enough and that we're on our own and that it's money and more stuff that's going to make us happy. And it's just not true. Everything is God's and God cares for you and God wants to provide for you, but he does not promise you a perfectly renovated bathroom or a new couch. 
We're just lucky sometimes, and we need to say this. We're just lucky and blessed we have a couch to sit on. Third truth, God wants my freedom. We sang about it, these first songs. We sang right from the book of Galatians, where Paul is, is writing about freedom, and of course he's writing about freedom from sin and death and freedom from the belief that we have to claw our way up to God by being obedient to his law. But I think there's this bigger theme of freedom that runs throughout the whole New Testament, especially around money. Paul writes, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Jesus knew that one of the primary things that could enslave the human soul, if we're not careful with it, is our money. That's why he said you can't serve both God and money. It wasn't a threat. It was simply the truth. And so I I just want to take a moment. We're trying to do this more and more at Orchard. When we teach about something, we also want to offer an opportunity to take a class or to read a book or to sign up for something that may be really helpful to you. If you're in the room this morning and this topic just makes your stomach clench up, you know, and you feel enslaved or you feel fear, or angst, or you're just not good at budgeting, or you just want to get ahead of the game. I really encourage you, in January, we're going to offer Financial Peace University. It costs $100 to sign up for the materials. And we believe it could be the best $100 any of us have ever spent. It could be $100 that ends up setting you free. So if you don't have $100, start saving, because it's worth it. Truth number four is that God wants me. It's all God's. God cares for me. God wants my freedom. But more than even all of those things, what God wants is you. And he wants money and how we handle it and how we use it and what we do with it to actually become not a war zone and not a panic room, But this touch point with him, you think about this for just a minute. What if my folks, when I turned 18 and trotted off to Chicago, gave me this credit card and set me out in the world as parents do, and then I used that credit card, I used that monthly allotment, but I never, ever emailed them, wrote them, called them. I never invited them to come visit me. I never came home and sat around the dining room table with them. I never shared my life with them. I never called them and told them that I spent $50 going down to the old Marshall Field building in downtown Evanston and bought myself the worst, ugliest outfit to go to a dance with a boy who I didn't like anyway. It was just the wrong color for me. Do you know what I mean? It was like a pale lavender. It's bad. But what if I never called them and talked with them and had a relationship with them, but I took their $50? They would still give me that $50 because that's just who they are. But they would miss me 
They would be sad. They would want to talk to me about how I'm feeling about that money or if I'm in a pinch and I need some help. They would want to know what my struggles were, but I would never call them. I just wanted their money. Think how God feels when we, his children, accept from his abundance whatever it is he chooses to provide for us, and we never talk to him. We never talk to him about our needs, our wants. We never thank him. Unfortunately, that's just what too many of our lives are like when it comes to God and money. I think mostly because we feel so bad and guilty about it that we just don't even know how to be in a relationship with God about it. And yet I think he desperately wants to help walk us into a place of freedom and joy and generosity and abundance with it. You see, this idea that God wants money to be a touch point for us rather than a place to run from him means my financial disaster can be a prime opportunity for me to practice trusting God. It can really gussy up my prayer life, if you know what I mean. It can really encourage me to seek God's wisdom and to find his strength to dig out of the hole that I either landed in, you know, through no fault of my own, or I dug for myself. This also means that my financial windfall is the same kind of opportunity, an opportunity for me to practice trust in God and prayer about how God might want me to steward those resources for the good of other people in this world. One way... I try to do this. I'm not very good at this. I'm not going to lie. And it's really a miracle that Chuck and I have stayed married because we're so different around the issue of money. But ever since we got married 32 years ago, I've written the checks. I wrote the checks when we were struggling. I've written the checks when we've had enough. And except for push pay for church, because I often fail to give because I got a lot of other things going on on Sunday. I want you to know all the staff members at Orchard give to Orchard. I, I hope that's helpful to you. But aside from push pay, I write out all our checks. Some of you young people don't know what a checkbook is, okay? I should have brought it up here to demonstrate to you what a check... But I want to know every week... I sit down with the bills. I look at what we have in our account. I talk to Chuck about the overall picture. I sometimes light a candle. I say a little prayer. And I invite God to participate with me in the shyry finance meeting of Alice and her checkbook. Right? Because it's all his. And I practice being grateful for what's in the account. And then I can even pay an electricity bill. And I notice maybe when another kind of a bill is higher than I, I know it should be. And I ask God for strength and conviction and encouragement to make a change. Sometimes a, a name of a person or a group will come to my mind and I know that God's saying to me, hey, could you take some of that abundance that I've given you and could you write a check to maybe help a young child in Haiti go to school could you maybe buy a pie to help try pie, you know, get, get on its feet? God wants to be in relationship with me when it comes to money. Our life, 
Our monetary life can be a touch point for our relationship with God rather than a panic room. So my encouragement to each one of us this morning, no matter where you are on the spectrum, right, of absolute financial despair to absolute financial freedom, we're all across the board. How could you start right now to begin to believe the truth that everything's God? to practice trusting that he cares for you and that he desperately wants your freedom when it comes to money. And what is one tangible way you could start to use your, all your decisions you make about money to build a relationship with the God who created you and who loves you and wants you to have a life of joy and freedom? I'm going to pray. God, it is hard. It is hard to fight off the messages that are so prevalent. It is hard to fight off the messages in our own heart that tell us in one of the wealthiest nations on the planet, oh, our hearts tell us, if you just had a little bit more, then you'd be happy. And then we get a little bit more and we find out we're not happy and we think, well, maybe if I just had a little bit more, And the whole while, God, you're whispering different words to us, words about enough and words about generosity and words about freedom. Help us, God, as we sing to reset our mind on your truth. And God, would you, in each one of our hearts, lead us toward living in your reality when it comes to money and stuff so that we can live more and more in joy and freedom. Amen.